Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you, Pastor John and Terry, for uh, sharing your pulpit, or music stand in our case, I guess, uh, with me. Um, it's an honor to be invited back to, uh, to share with you. Uh, you might want to begin looking for the book of Habakkuk now. It's a little trickier to find. I'll give you a hint. It's right between Nahum and Zephaniah. So that should uh, help you a little bit. I'm not as on target as John. I don't know what page number it is in your, your little pew Bible there, but you can start looking for it. Habakkuk is known as a minor prophet, and whenever I talk about a minor prophet, I like to clarify what we mean by these phrases, minor prophet versus major prophet. By by several major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then there's 12 minor prophets. Habakkuk is one, Nahum, Haggai, Malachi are others. Well, when we hear the word minor and major, we generally attach some kind of value judgment to that. And so in our minds, we end up with something like the major and minor leagues in baseball. And we say, well, Isaiah was in the major leagues, but then there was these other prophets who like, didn't quite have their swing down or they couldn't quite get their fastball right, and they're still in the minors. Like there's minor league and major league prophets. But the major prophets are actually called major prophets not because they were more important than the minor prophets, but because the major prophets wrote larger books. We have larger books in our Bibles from the major prophets, smaller books from the minor prophets. That's why they're called major and minor. We don't want to think that Habakkuk's ministry was minor. We don't want to think that Habakkuk lived his life hoping to be somebody better like Isaiah was. Habakkuk had a major ministry in his life. He just wrote a shorter book and therefore is grouped in as a minor prophet. So it is not to say that Habakkuk's presence or work or preaching in the life of Israel was minor or unimportant. Habakkuk was important in his time, and he's important in our time for at least this reason. Habakkuk models for us the art of questioning God. This past week, I began to set up my classroom to welcome students back to Padua Academy, which means that over the next several months, the next few hundred days of my life will be filled with questions, lots and lots of questions before school, before class, during class, after class, between class, after school, emails. Questions. Hundreds and hundreds of questions. And if you'll remember back to your school days, perhaps to your elementary school, you probably had some lovely, lovely young teacher with a lovely sweet name like Miss Mitchell. Miss Mitchell would stand in front of you when you were all at your desks with your hands folded. And she would tell you a little bit about the school and what was going to go on. And then little Miss Mitchell would say, are there any questions? Don't be afraid to ask. There's no such thing as a dumb question. I am 37 years old. I began school at the age of five. And I have not had a year of my life since then where I have not either been in a classroom as a student or in front of a classroom as a teacher, either part-time or full-time. I've spent 32 straight years in a classroom. I've heard tens of thousands of questions, and I must declare to you this morning, there is such a thing (laughs) as a dumb question. There's such a thing as a very dumb 
question. There's such a thing as an are you kidding me? Where have you been? type of question. You've all heard them. I'm just saying what you already know. I'm saying what you've already thought. You've all sat in that classroom or at that meeting. You're at some kind of training for work and the hand goes up and the question comes out and you sit there and you go, are you kidding me? Did she really just ask that? Did he really, did he really just ask that? Was he not here a minute ago? Of course, we've not only heard the dumb questions, but somewhere, sometime in your life, you've asked it. You've asked the dumb question. You've been the one that someone else was looking at going, are you kidding me? So in spite of what your kind elementary teacher may have told you, I think we all know that there's such a thing as the dumb question. The issue for us this morning, though, when considering the art of questioning God is this. Is there such a thing as asking a dumb question to God? Or does God say to us, are there any questions? Don't be afraid to ask. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Would God say to us, there's no such thing as a dumb question? Well, my suggestion would be that I don't know how God would rate the intelligence of our question. But I'd like to assert this, that there are better and worse questions to ask God, and there are better and worse ways of asking God questions. There's a good way to approach God with questions, and there's a not-so-good way to approach God with questions. And I don't know if God would ever call a question dumb, but he might respond to us with something like, are you kidding? I I just told you that. You already know this. And so there seems to be legitimate ways to question God and illegitimate or inappropriate ways to question God. And using Habakkuk this morning, I'd like to explore some principles in the art of questioning God. Now, Habakkuk is not the only questioner of God in the Bible, so he's not unique. Matter of fact, some of the greatest followers of God have also been questioners of God. Abraham asked, O sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I am childless? Moses, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? Job asked, why do the wicked live on, growing old, increasing in power? David asked, how long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? Jeremiah asked, why do the wicked prosper? And even Jesus himself, from the cross, asks God a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Abraham to Moses, from Job to David, from Habakkuk to Jesus, we find that faithful followers of God also seem at least comfortable or at least willing to question God. And so clearly we can question God as well, but there's examples of bad questionings of God in the Bible too. I think of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. God approaches him with the question after Cain murders his brother Abel. God approaches him and says, where is your brother? And Cain answers with the famous or perhaps infamous answer, am I my brother's keeper? You see, that would fall into the bad question category when questioning God. And it may even fall into the, are you kidding me, Cain? Haven't you been listening, Cain, 
type of question because just a few verses earlier, after Cain's sacrifice was rejected and it says that his face was downcast and the anger was welling up in him, God approaches Cain and says, careful, sin is crouching at your door. It seeks, it desires to have you, but you must master it. And yet Cain does not, murders his brother, and then has the nerve to ask God, am I my brother's keeper? This question from Cain was not a question of seeking, it was a question of entrapment. It was trying to lock God in, it was trying to sort of verbally trick him his way out of something. And locking God in with our questions is not part of the art of questioning God. But I find that in our prayers, we often subtly do just that. We often pray with such a language and pray in such a way that we we actually attempt to lock God in to a certain route or to a certain path. And so this morning, as we explore the art of questioning God, we're going to talk about what to look for in questioning God, but also how to avoid a spirit where we're trying to lock God in. And so... We're going to sort of build a sample prayer as we go along this morning. And so I've started the prayer with sort of a simple question that kind of might reflect the kind of question you might ask God in a prayer. You might ask a question like, Lord, should I pursue this new opportunity or stay where I am? Sort of a stereotypical question. I encourage you, if you have a question on your heart that you're wrestling with with God, to kind of fill in your question there. Fill in the new opportunity blank with whatever you are thinking through. And so this is a question, the type of question we might ask, and we want to figure out, well, how do we ask it well? How do we seek God's direction, ask questions of God in a way that is appropriate? And we'll look, for Habakkuk, look to Habakkuk for that. Last week, Pastor John shared with us from the first part of Habakkuk and Habakkuk's first question to God, a question that was prompted by the wickedness he saw all around them as the video sort of uh, portrayed for us. He sees all this, uh, this injustice, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And, and, and Habakkuk says, well, how long? How long is this injustice going to reign? It was an appeal for God to speak in an area where he had been silent. And last week we talked about the mystery of unanswered prayer and how to cope with some of the unfairness that we see in our world's And clearly Habakkuk had prayed this prayer before. He perhaps had prayed this prayer often. But in this case, we find that God finally answers Habakkuk. Habakkuk says to God, how long are you going to ignore the injustice? And God answers him, starting in verse 5. Follow with me. God says, in answer to that question, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if told. I am raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They, the Babylonians, they are feared and dreaded people. They, the Babylonians, are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards Fiercer than wolves at dusk, their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. 
They, still the Babylonians, they deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities. Then they build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. That's quite a resume for the Babylonians. So the conversation, if I could trace it, goes something like this. Habakkuk, how much longer is violence going to reign in Israel without you doing anything about it? And God says, not much longer, Habakkuk. I'm about to bring in the Babylonians, the horrible, terrible, vicious, and merciless Babylonians to terrorize and punish you, so don't worry about it. I got it covered. Which brings us to our first principle in the art of questioning God. Look for God to provide a way. Look for God to provide a way, but don't lock him into your suggested ways. As a teacher, as I said earlier, I get asked lots of questions, but as you can imagine, I also ask a lot of questions. And I write a lot of questions for tests and quizzes, and I write a lot of multiple-choice questions. And I have a little bit of a reputation for writing difficult multiple-choice questions. It's not that I'm trying to be hard. I'm not trying to be hard. But I often include in my multiple-choice questions the infamous choice D, none of the above. You hated none of the above, didn't you? And I assert that it forces a student to know the material. They can't just sort of process of elimination. Let me give you an example for those of you who haven't seen a multiple-choice question for a while. Which country is south of the equator? Canada, Spain, Madagascar, or none of the above? Now, a typical mind would, well, it's obviously not Canada, it's certainly not Spain, and then you're starting to figure out, where exactly is Madagascar again? It's an island, right? Okay, so where is it? How far south is it? And you're working through it. But all the time while you're working through the location of Madagascar, letter D is staring you at the face, saying it might not be Madagascar either. It might be none of the above. Which is a very different question than this. What country is south of the equator? Canada, Spain, or Madagascar? We're much more comfortable with that question. Most of you. There may be a few that are, think Spain is really warm. <laughs> Often when we pray, we pray like this second multiple choice example. We say something like this, God, will you give me A, B, or C? I'll be happy with A, B, or C. I've worked out A, B, and C. So one of those would be great. And that's usually when our prayers are generous. Frequently we say, God, I've worked out A and B. So either one of those would work, or even, God, I've worked out A, so when you can make that happen, that would be great. This is certainly part of Habakkuk's mindset. We'll see this a little more as we read ahead. But certainly when Habakkuk approached God with the question, God, when are you going to take care of the injustice in Israel? One of the choices in his mind was not bring in the Babylonians to pillage and destroy the land. This was not part of Habakkuk's A, B, or C. Here's what we must remember when praying and seeking God. I think it's okay, and I think we see it in Scripture, that you share your heart with God in prayer. That if you feel like A, B, and C are the options, then you lay before God A, B, and C. And you seek A, B, and C, these options that seem to be sort of 
cloudily forming as choices, as answers. I think it's, it's right and good that we lay those before God. But part of the discipline of the art of questioning God is also to say, but God, if you have another plan, I will follow. God, if you have another plan, I will follow. That's essentially saying, God, none of the above is fine with me too. We look for God to answer, but we don't lock him into our suggested choices, which might mean our prayer would continue with something like this. We ask, Lord, should I pursue the new opportunity or stay where I am? Lord, I feel that you're directing me in one of these two ways, but if you have another plan, I am willing to follow. Well, you can imagine Habakkuk's distress over God saying, actually, my solution is D, none of the above, but rather I'm going to bring in the Babylonians. So Habakkuk responds with another question. Follow with me in verse 12. Habakkuk, in response to this news from God, says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them, pulls all of them up with hooks. The wicked foe, this is a fisherman imagery of the Babylonians. So the Babylonians are the fishermen here. The wicked foe, the fisherman, pulls all of them up with their hooks. He catches them. The Babylonians catch others in their net, gathers them in their dragnet, and rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he, this evil fisherman, sacrifices to his net. He burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? So let's review the conversation now. Habakkuk had said, Lord, how much longer is violence going to reign in Israel without you doing something about it? God said, not much longer, Habakkuk. I'm bringing in the Babylonians, the horrible, terrible, vicious, and merciless Babylonians to terrorize and punish Israel. So I've got it covered. Habakkuk here responds with, oh, uh, okay. Uh, All right, well, uh, how exactly is it that you can bring people more wicked than Israel in to judge Israel? How does does that work? Look at the way in which uh, Habakkuk contextualizes this question. He points out in 12 and 13 some of the characteristics of God, that God is everlasting. He talks about God being holy, that God will be faithful, that God's pure, that God cannot tolerate wrong. He sort of goes through this litany of the characteristics of God. And in that place, from that launching point, he asks his question, how can the more wicked swallow up the wicked? And we may at first say, well, is is Habakkuk kind of buttering God up here? Is he kind of softening God up for the question, kind of like our kids do? Hey, Dad, thanks for mowing the lawn today. The lawn looks great. You're such a great dad. You turn to your kid and say, okay, what do you want? 
or depending on your kid, what have you done? <laughs> but I think there's something more here than flattery. I think Habakkuk, Habakkuk has just received information that has blown his world apart. He is, he is off kilter. He has been told information that's highly disturbing to him, and he's looking to reroute himself in what he knows. And so he reroutes himself in the character of God. He's refining himself in the foundation of the character of God. In the midst of all these changes, he's, he's basing himself in something that does not change. And so our second principle in the art of questioning God is to look for God to be consistent in his character, but not necessarily in his particular method. God has the right to and sometimes will do something in your life absolutely different than he's done in the life of someone else, even if that other person has been in the same situation. God has the right to give an answer to one person's question that's a little different than the answer to your life question. There'll even be times where God operates at one time in your life differently than he's operated in the past. So we need to even be cautious of saying, well, God's always shown me how to, work, how, to, how to progress in this certain way, in this method, and so I'm going to look for that exact method again. He may use the same method, but he may direct you in a different way than he has done in the past. We can't lock God into doing things in the same way. God's own words, when he breaks the news to Habakkuk, he sets it up with verse 5. He says this, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something that's unexpected and different, or something you never would have predicted. And I think many of us have experienced this in our lives. I bet if I asked some of you or you thought back, many of you have probably said something like, if you had told me 10 years ago I'd be where I am today, I never would have believed you. And perhaps that's part of what God does when he says, I'm going to do something with you that you never could have predicted. And that can sometimes bring unease to us. It can bring a sense of unpredictability. Well, we, don't, we don't always know what God's going to do. We don't always know his method. And so Habakkuk models for us this idea of resting on the unchanging character of God. We can't assert that we know what God's going to do next. We can't assert what we know of the character of God. No matter how God answers your questions or responds to your prayer, you can depend on the unchanging facts that God loves you and will treat you with love. That he's forgiving and will treat you with grace. That he is just and will treat you as responsible. He is long-suffering and will treat you with patience. He's strong and will support you with power. God's methods of dealing with us may be different, but his his character remains consistent, so our prayer would develop this direction. After we say, I am willing to follow, we assert God's character. No matter how you lead me, though, I know that you love me and you will offer what is best. I know that your strength will support me in this time of uncertainty and that you will be patient as I look to discern your direction. Notice how the prayer is becoming much more mature. The prayer is becoming much more focused not on the nature of the question, but on the nature of God. The prayer is becoming much more weighty and rooted. Well, after asking the second question, Habakkuk perches himself 
on a watchtower to look for an answer. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. This brings us to our third and final principle in the art of questioning God. Look for God to be attentive in your situation, but do not lock him into your time frame. This is a hard one. We're not particularly good at waiting. Much of our society has been built to circumvent waiting. And indeed, waiting can sometimes be bad. Just recently, a few weeks ago, in the news journal, I read this article. It was entitled, Time, Patience, Drained at the Delaware DMV. (laughs) The article begins when Mike Trincia went to the new Department of Motor Vehicles near Wilmington for an inspection sticker he expected to take an hour and a half. Instead, he and his Hyundai Santa Fe were there for six hours. Have some of you experienced this? Yeah, sorry about that. I live in Maryland. (laughs) I live in Elkton, so, you know, I don't have the privilege. But by the way, next time you start making fun of me, because I live in Elkton, you know, redneck, I know, I've heard it. Just remember the DMV situation. We may park our cars in our front yard, but those cars only took an hour to register. So, all right, actually, we don't usually bother to register our cars, but that's... (laughs) The point is this, the point is this, is that, that some waiting is evil. Some waiting is certainly evil, but not all waiting. Even in our experience, some of you may have waited for just the right moment to propose. You waited till just the right moment. Maybe some of you have waited up for a phone call. Sometimes even standing in line can be a good kind of waiting because it increases the excitement of what you're waiting for, assuming it's not the DMV, but if you're at an amusement park and it's a roller coaster, the waiting can be fun. Habakkuk understands something about waiting, particularly spiritual waiting. He gives this image of going onto a watchtower. Of course, you know that if you're on a watchtower, you're guarding something, you're the lookout for something. How do you want that guy on the watchtower to be waiting? You, don't want, you want him to have like one of those beach chairs, a little drink with an umbrella in it, Texting his roommate. That's not the kind of waiting you want from the guy on the watchtower. You want the guy on the watchtower actively and alertly looking and seeking and waiting. The waiting wasn't passive. The waiting was alert and awake. And so when Habakkuk says, I'm going to go up to the watchtower, he's actively expecting an answer. He is not expecting a God who will be silent, but rather one who will answer. But we must balance this posture with the Habakkuk at the start of chapter 1, where he says, how long, O Lord, where apparently Habakkuk's been waiting for a while to get this answer. Clearly, waiting is something Habakkuk learned to do. He, understand, he understood that something that feels slow to us may not be, is not slow to God. 
God promises in verse two, chapter 2, verse 3, wait for it, God says, it will certainly come, it will not delay. God is not slow in answering us. God always answers us in the exact right time. It may feel slow. There may be a lot of waiting involved. But we can be assured that God will answer us in the exact right time. So we need to be alert and we need to listen. And we may add to our prayer something like this. I will wait for your answer. We can even admit I feel pressure to know the answer, but I believe you will answer me at the exact needed time. And so we even admit to God, we say, I will wait. I will wait like a backache on the watchtower. I will wait for an answer. God bless you this morning. We're so glad that you were with us. As I was putting together this model prayer that I was showing you along the way, I was thinking in my mind, you know, we already have a model prayer in the Bible. Jesus gave us a model prayer, and I was reflecting on that, and I realized that the first part of Jesus' prayer um, reflect the very principles we talked about this morning. When Jesus says, uh, hallowed be your name, he's looking for God's consistency of character. When he says, your kingdom come, he's saying, I will submit to your time frame. When we say, your will be done, we look for God to provide a way, but not perhaps our suggested way. So I thought that today we could close by praying the Lord's Prayer together. That'll be on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.